And welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. My name's Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando up here on the beautiful, pristine Smith River on the border of California and Oregon in the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns true <laughs> for the most part. Uh, we are coming out of Slater Fire and getting back into our normal swing of things. And today we are so pumped to have uh, Andrew Kaufman back on the show, uh, something we've been really looking forward to, of course. Uh, those that are new to the podcast who are coming over here, uh, you can find out more about us on our website, alphavedic.com. There you can see the wonderful products that we hand formulate and create and uh, out of the farm here up on the, up on the river. We have an off-grid operation and a health co-op that you can join at patreon.com forward slash alphavedic, as well as a really vital and just kick-ass uh, community on Telegram, t.me forward slash alphavedic. Uh, if you are interested in these types of topics we'll be discussing today, that is the place to go to really engage with like-minded souls who are on this same path. Uh, also, if you are in the West Coast or don't mind flying with the mask on and you want to come hang with us, uh, we are doing a special wellness gathering next weekend in Joshua Tree. And we have some amazing people that have been on AlphaCast that will be there speaking, doing workshops. We have healers there. We have uh, wonderful artists uh, as well as you like Mir One will be there, who is just a fantastic uh, truther artist. We have a, a live art gallery going. We have amazing music going. We've got, it's a square mile of rock boulder gardens with underground tunnels and all sorts of things to explore. We'll have, uh, there's earth ships there and uh, permaculture design elements that we'll be going into. We'll be talking about regenerative agriculture, uh, cryptocurrencies, sovereignty, common law, natural law. Uh, we'll be going into all sorts of modalities for wellness. I mean, it really is all about, you know, it's essentially the embodiment of AlphaCast in person with like-minded souls all coming together to, to really manifest the world we want to see. So if this is something that resonates with you, we still do have some openings. This is a private event, heavily curated event. And if you are interested, find us on Telegram, t.me forward slash AlphaVedic and hit us up. Or you can message me on Instagram at DJ Mike Winner. Okay. Andy Kaufman uh, in the house. So pumped to have you in here, sir. Uh, let me do a quick bio. I, I don't think it's really needed too much since uh, our, our, our community knows who you are. But Andrew Kaufman, MD, completed psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina while earning a BS from MIT in molecular biology. But he is not your average physician. Andrew believes that the innate wisdom of your body can heal itself from almost any insult. He states, if you support your body's wisdom, you will return to vitality. This is exactly what we say. Andrew also recognizes that dis-ease in the modern era is largely due to the thousands of toxins we are exposed to each and every day. Dr. Kaufman has received international acclaim in recent months for shedding a different light on the alleged pandemic within a context of biotrain medicine in which microbes are understood as echobionts rather than pathogens. Andrew refers to his medical approach as medicamentum authentica, which means authentic medicine, preferring the Latin term less prone to distortion or inversion. You owe it to yourself and family to listen to this 
podcast um, and share it, please, because Andrew has just done, he's been one of the most effective people out there spreading this truth. And so we're so happy to have him on today, huh, Bear? How are you doing today, Bear? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to this, Andrew. Thanks for being with us again. Uh, you've been uh, just a tremendous force for articulating medical truth and truth on every level, actually. And, and we're, we're all uh, indebted to you for sticking your neck out a bit and getting out there because, boy, the times, uh, you know, sorely uh, call for, you know, your intellect and, and your experience and, and your just ability to speak the truth. Um, you, you, there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about today. You know, I know you, you have a lot of interest farming, uh, spagyric, uh, medicine. Um, you know, unfortunately we live in this, uh, fictional world where the Cerveza situation has captured everybody's attention. And with your background, you know, you're happen to be the, the best person to really, uh, <laughs> address that in my opinion of all the different types of doctors out there speaking. Um, so we can go into any of these areas, and I know you and I uh, are invited on a panel together coming up in a few weeks with uh, Matt Belair, with, um, I, I don't even know, uh, the other gentleman from Skeptico, who I guess will play the devil's advocate and uh, grill us on uh, germ theory versus uh, bioterrain medicine. So Andrew, we can certainly talk about that today and do a little warm up for our upcoming debate, uh, or we could go into any of these other areas. So uh, I, another thing I really want to hear from you, if possible, is just your whole concept of authentic medicine, because I know uh, that's your platform and, and you just really developed that to a high level. So if you care to speak on that as well, I'd be delighted. So thanks again for being here and uh i'll follow your lead yeah well you guys um you know first of all like i consider you guys like uh, brothers and uh you know fellow uh, warriors in this kind of uh you know new era that we're trying to raise awareness about and uh you know every time i come and talk to you guys all i could think of is i wish i lived closer <laughs> because i i really uh would like to be going to that event um it's just uh too difficult in my schedule to travel that far and deal with the airline situation but um you know you guys definitely pick the best place in california to be the rest of uh, california is uh the place i'd want to be as far away as possible from <laughs> right now um although i do love california and i, I was out there right before things started um but yeah, we can you know definitely talk about those things, and I'm glad you mentioned medicamentum authentica. And I know it's uh, difficult to pronounce for many people, so I apologize about that. But it is, uh, from my perspective, you know, really important to have um, a name and a symbol for my mission of um, you know improving people's health that can't be subverted. And, you know, by using a dead language, as you mentioned, right, the meaning of those words can't be changed as the meanings of words in our modern language have been, right? Like even germ and virus, you know, we've talked about many times, those meanings have been totally changed. And that's a, a way really, I think, to confuse uh, the truth about a certain issue. So I wanted to have something that really represents what I'm about, and that is not something that can be corrupted down the line. And what it really refers to, what I mean by authentic medicine is 
what I mean, what really allows your body to restore itself to health. Because it's not that as practitioners or physicians or healers or whatever term we want to use, we don't give something that heals the body. What we do is we give you know, something, and it might not be a substance, right? It could just be information, but that thing allows the person's body to heal itself. And because our bodies take care of everything that they need to, to maintain life, including recovering from an insult, uh, which, you know, most likely would be toxic in nature or perhaps traumatic or perhaps a nutritional deficiency, uh, or it could be a psychological uh, issue as well. But our bodies have the ability and they really are the only ones that have the ability to heal from those conditions. So the authentic medicine is to support that authentic ability of our body um, to, to heal itself. And this could be done in many, many different ways, like with natural medicine, right? There's not just one way to provide the right uh, support for your body's healing, right? Like Bear, I think you and I have a, a kind of a different approach in what we specifically might recommend or what we think will, but in parallel, both of our approaches may be equally successful. And I think that this is built into nature, Right, and uh, I think a, a good example of how to look at this would be looking at essential oils, because uh, essential oils are you know, something that plants produce as sort of their immune defense. <clears throat> they generally secrete these oily substances on the leaves where insects and other pests may come and try to eat. And they're using the leaves to basically get food um, and make energy. Right, so destroying the leaves would really disrupt the function, so they secrete these oils. Now, we know that by harvesting these oils that they can be therapeutic uh, for us, right? Like let's say, for example, to help heal from cancer um, or many, many other conditions. But what we find is that there are different plants that make different essential oils that grow in different geographic areas. And basically, whichever ones grow in your area would be the ones that would be therapeutic for you. And so if you're in Australia, it might be tea tree oil. Um, and if you're in uh, the Florida, it might be lemon oil, right? And these things will have overlapping and very similar healing properties because there's this redundancy built into nature um, to provide all of the organisms everything they need. Um, so this is why we can have many different approaches. We have, you know, Chinese healing, right? We have uh, sort of uh, jungle type healing, right? That we hear from South America. And we have uh, even using um, electromagnetic radiation modalities like uh, Tesla and Rife used, right? So we have all these different ways and they can all be successful. So we don't need to be stuck really with one, uh, you know, set of practices. We can really you know, customize the approach for the individual, for their cultural backgrounds, their belief systems, access to services. Like for me, uh, almost all the clients that I work with are remote. There are very few people in my geographic area. So I can't have them come over and spend time on a, on a Violet Ray device, <laughs> right? Um, I could possibly instruct them to purchase one, which would be very difficult. Um, but I, so that's not practical for what I do. So I have other ways, but like Clive DeCarl, who I've done uh, some interesting conversations, he, ha he really is kind of a, 
a collector and historian about those types of machines. And so he is able to bring people into his practice to use those in quite successfully. Um, in fact, recently he talked about even someone healing from paralysis uh, by using a violet ray device. So, you know, that's really my overall uh, philosophy about that. And I want to just add one more important element, which, um, you know, I, I think I did a discussion about this, but I'm very interested in esoteric spiritual philosophy. And I think specifically the seven hermetic principles seem to apply very appropriately, you know, to healthcare and in the model that I conceptualize. And I think the most important of those is the law of cause and effect. And that for everyone who has a health issue, right, whether you call it a disease or an illness or a symptom, that there's always a cause for that effect. And generally speaking, the cause is something that person did. Now, not that they purposely tried to cause illness, but they inadvertently did, or maybe their parents uh, made the decision for them when they were younger. And so it's really important because allopathic medicine, like our mainstream healthcare system, doesn't really even know the cause for most uh, types of illness, right? They, they might say, well, it's probably due to a virus, right? They often say that when they don't know. Um, and in fact, there was a major research effort by the United States government in the 70s, the war on cancer was all about trying to find viruses that cause cancer and they, they came up short. But all the autoimmune disease, right? They say, we don't know what causes it. Um, sometimes they do say something causes it, but, but it's actually not true at all. Like they say, high cholesterol causes heart disease and that's not true. Um, at all there. Uh, and it's pretty well known what really causes heart disease. So that one is uh, really problematic. But I guarantee that there's always a cause. And I, in my experience, you can almost always figure out what it is if you ask enough of the right questions. So my approach would be to identify and then address the underlying cause, which most often is related to toxicity and or parasites. But can also be several other things that I previously mentioned, um, you know, including electromagnetic uh, radiation, like especially smart meters, um, you know, and 5G towers. So, but if you're able to identify that cause and address it directly, then your body will reverse, you know, the disease process because it won't need to because all of these illnesses that are manifest are actually your body trying to correct some problem underlying and you just need to support your body correcting that. So I hope yeah, that wasn't too long-winded. <laughs> no, no, that was fantastic. And, and as usual, you kind of hit it out of the park from the start. Um, you know, in conventional medicine, it's, there's one way to do things, period. Uh, when we look at causal, either we say it's idiopathic, we don't know what the heck, you know, <laughs> is causing it. Right. Or uh, we come up with very cursory circumstantial evidence, you know, whatever is at the scene of the crime, we blame that, whether it's cholesterol or a microbe. And so it's uh, really not that satisfying as a practitioner, because in my experience, uh, that approach, that mindset typically doesn't work. And then the only um, recourse you have is to revert back to the things that are proven not 
to work and, you know, at the, at the same time shy away from uh, things that are in other circles are proven, you know, effective. Yeah. Uh, I particularly like what you say about there's not one way to do things. And, you know, every practitioner, of course, develops different tools. And what you learn about in the healing arts, and I really like to call it the healing arts because it acknowledges that we have a perfect blend of science and artistic endeavor that allows a practitioner to use their not just creativity, but their consciousness to bring to the table what they have to offer to the world because we're all different. So if you're, um, you know, going to see Andrew, Andrew has an energy field and experience a consciousness that uh, is the medicine that attracts people to him in the first place. And that is very healing. People that come to see me, I have a different uh, experience and I'm going to explore different tools perhaps and bring to the table a different frequency medicine, so to speak, that will attract different people. There's not a right or a wrong or a single way to do things. Also, when it comes to plant medicine, uh, you, you know, really outlined, you know, all the amazing things that plant medicine is good for and how it works. And also, uh, it works on an energetic level because those plants, especially the essential oils, which distill the essence of a plant tremendously in, you know, one single little drop, they carry the energetic patterns that created them in the first place. And then, you know, we can talk more about bioterrain medicine maybe, but bioterrain medicine isn't just limited to microbial investigation and, and looking at things biochemically, but the electromagnetic forces that put that chemistry into place in the first place. And we live in a marvelous time where a lot of old school uh, knowledge is resurfacing. And at the same time, we have new techniques that are making that old school knowledge more effective and applicable. And that allows us to turn, tune into those primes. So now you're really upstream as far as looking at causes. Hey Bear, we're getting a little bit of. And in fact, uh, Bear, we're getting a little bit of internet. A little bit of internet um, uh, interference. Could you back up a little bit? Uh, where maybe thirty seconds. seconds. Sure. What was I talking about last? <laughs> Man, you were in such a flow. Sorry, I just that's why well, it's you, important. I think you you ended off talking about that essential oils are like the essence and energetic signature of a plant and you started talking a little bit about energy healing and how it fits into terrain medicine okay thanks andrew i'll make this quick because i want to hear from you um you know those uh, uh what we're talking about is the primal those uh things that make plant medicine work in the first place and now we live again in a marvelous time where old knowledge is resurfacing the old alchemical knowledge and but now we have uh, the ability to develop instrumentations which we use as we speak in order to measure those waveforms and literally bend them to create the recreate the symmetry that nature originally created but then we distort 
with our own lifestyle indiscretions, uh, you know, uh, superstitions, and also the kind of medicine that actually works contrary to what nature created in the first place. And the really cool thing about it is uh, when you get on that level of reality, there is no time and space, and you can even uh, create a big change to benefit somebody at a distance. That's another whole discussion, and it's yeah. not far-fetched or woo-woo at all. Uh, we can precisely measure and demonstrate the results and also reproduce them practitioner to practitioner. So, Andrew, uh, thanks. That was a, a great opening statement, and... Uh, definitely not too long at all. So take it away. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you brought up this, uh, this topic because it's, uh, it's a very uh, rich um, uh, substance to discuss. And, um, you know, what we're really talking about is materialism here. Um, and, you know, what's happened is over the last century, you know, we've been dominated by this scientific materialist uh, paradigm and which germ theory is a major, it's like the biological component of. And what that did, it did is it focused all of the last hundred years of research practically, you know, aside from Beauchamp and Bernard and Nasons and a few people who published in the early part of the century, um, to all of that research effort was really all about germ theory, which is based on faulty science um, and fraud. So now is a super exciting time because we have this opportunity to start a new era of scientific discovery where we can step back from that materialist perspective and look at a new perspective where we could actually really gain a lot of understanding of the old wisdom. So in other words, a resurgence of this old wisdom combined with some of the excellent experiments that I described can be the foundation to one, you know, validate these old wisdom through scientific uh, experimentation and empirical study, and then also answer some of the gaps in the knowledge. And it's really important, though, that there has to be a major shift in this paradigm, because if we're stuck in materialism, we're only going to, uh, you know, have a very limited ability to discover anything. And I'll, I'll give you an example of how this plays out because you brought up energetic healing. And based on this materialism, right, we attribute all the properties of a substance to the physical matter of it. And when we're talking about biology and physiology, we're really talking about chemistry. Like we kind of learn about this in you know, in, in graduate school and medical school as, you know, the chemistry is what runs the whole body. And that's like physical molecules interacting with each other and exchanging energy, basically, right? But what we totally neglect is that all of those energetic exchanges also result in radiation of electromagnetic waves and in production of electricity. And in fact, we, we really already know, and it's widely accepted in biology, that for our cells to function, we need to maintain what's called a resting membrane potential, which is a voltage, right? So there has to be um, a more charge, more negative charge on one side of the cell membrane compared to the other. And this is absolutely crucial for life. And it's been taught to us that this, the energy to maintain this voltage is generated chemically, purely chemically, from ATP. 
Now, um, this is still, by the way, the, the widely accepted paradigm for biology, for molecular biology, so that our mitochondria metabolize and produce enough ATP to drive this ion pump on the membrane that keeps this voltage going. Unfortunately, what's happened is that some scientists have calculated how much energy that would actually take, and they determined that it was more than the mitochondria could actually produce at full capacity. So if they did that, the cells would not be able to conduct any other activity whatsoever and they would die. So it's known now through you know, straightforward mathematics, right, based on, on thermodynamic properties. So this is just you know, plug into an equation and get the answer and oh, it couldn't make that much energy. Um, that there has to be another theory. And so Gilbert Ling would be someone that you'd want to read if you want to really get into the nitty gritty of this. But essentially, there's things that we don't really understand at all. And it really has to do with the properties of water and of electromagnetism in order to understand how this system really works to maintain the voltage. And in order to consider that, you have to get away from materialism. And, you know, even though there have been so many experiments to really prove that this is true, it's still not widely accepted. So that's why we need an event like this going on now, like such an extreme event like the pandemic to shake up, you know, all of us into realizing that the science that we've been relying upon is not valid and that there are major, major shortcomings, even in the, at the most fundamental level, like germ theory is a very kind of fundamental um, argument, right? So much is based upon it. You know, just like um, gravity is a fundamental principle, right? That so much of mechanics is based upon gravity. So we have to get down at that basic fundamental level in order to rethink things. And then we can have an amazingly productive um, you know, era of scientific inquiry. And, you know, this is something that I, in, in as much as I have, uh, you know, the ability to kind of uh, promote this new era, like this is really what my, one of my main goals is. Yeah. And isn't it uh, incredible that a lot of sacred cows are really dying right now and a lot of uh, you know just what we think is concrete uh, uh, truth is, is being uh, dispelled for instance you could look at the heart the heart you know uh, has been calculated more recently that if you uh, look at the amount of pressure that would have to be generated within a left ventricle to push it all the way through the terminal capillaries uh, that that amount of pressure would explode. So what we're now understanding, you, you know, it, the heart doesn't even work as a pump the way we're taught in medical school. And uh, in fact, it's an energy vortex, um, you know, and when we start exploring, you know, making that jump from it, you know, term it loosely, you know, we say, oh, well, this physical matter by all chemistry radiates energy i would suggest that the energy is radiating the materialism and goes in that direction but uh please go on uh, uh hey bear you're breaking up every uh every 15 20 seconds maybe just check and see your resources make sure you don't have anything else running on your computer that might be sucking up your bandwidth there um, we're having some technical difficulties today guys sorry we're off grid here so sometimes uh 
the digital goblins come in and eat up our bandwidth. Mike, yeah, Mike, I'm gonna uh, reboot, so uh, I'll be vacant for. Okay. No worries. Yeah, because we really want to hear two seconds. Yeah, okay. we we really want to hear you, and that would be a bummer to keep going this way. So, um, hey, uh, hey, Andy, you know, Bear hey. really really hits it on the head there in terms of we're seeing uh, this system fracture and kind of break down right in front of our eyes with this um, supposed uh, Cerveza pandemic here. Um, and, you know, there's this article I shared with you last night that you read that once, once more and more start to wake up to just how silly germ theory is and how um, just how out of scope this has gotten, how much this has grown off this, this really faulty, corrupt, fraudulent, um, you know, ground floor of faulty science, how we have a literally, I would say almost a trillion dollar industry based on it. It's laughable when you, when you start looking at the mainstream articles about the pandemic, it's, it's just outright. I mean, it's just crazy how much of the illusion is being shattered right now. Um, and so I don't know, maybe while we're waiting for bear, we could quickly rip through this article unless uh, there's something else you'd like to talk about. But I think well, it's Mike, I just want to make uh, one quick point to emphasize what you said, because you said, right, if you read the articles and one of the most important things is that almost no one has actually read these papers. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, a lot of people criticize me and, you know, say my opinion is wacky and I, you know, disagree so vehemently with, with what's widely accepted. But I want to know out of those people who widely accepted this uh, narrative about viruses, like how many of them really looked at the paper and took the time to figure out what it means because you know, when I did that, I was really blown away because it was not what a paper looked like that I was taught to write a paper, you know, and I've published several papers and I've been a peer reviewer um, and I've read just got hundreds and hundreds of papers in my career. And it was just astonishing to see that they did not follow the scientific method, like no control experiments. You know, I don't know how you get an article published without a control group. Um, I certainly would have never been able to uh, be published. In fact, when I submitted manuscripts, I, I remember the peer reviewers were so picky, even, even when I had really solid statistics, they still found ways to criticize it. Um, so not having a control experiment, which is like something you learn in grade school, you know, when you learn the scientific uh, method, it's really um, astonishing. So, you know, for anyone out there who, you know, thinks that that I'm really off base in what I'm saying, I, I would really encourage you to go look at the papers and try to figure out what they mean. And, uh, or, you know, maybe do that and then look at some of my presentations where I try to explain them to help you figure it out because it's not so easy, um, you know, to figure out all the aspects. And I, I am trying to put out more material to go over uh, various parts of the experiments, like I'm working on a paper right now to explain the genome sequencing uh, techniques. Yes. And, you know, once um, I expose that a little more, it's, it's just quite astonishing that they're basically just creating uh, a genome out of nothing, like yeah. of a, an organism that doesn't exist. Yeah, could you, uh, are you familiar, I'm sure you are with Professor Christian Drosten um, and his whole, I mean, he basically was very, um, critical in starting this whole SARS-CoV-2 
or the, you know, the, uh, when uh, it exploded in China, because he supposedly developed the genetic test for it, right, uh, out of uh, Germany. And as you said, there was just no um, traditional foundational scientific um, checks and balances on his work. And it was just kind of accepted. Um, and this relates all to this, the genetic side, which I really wanted to get into today. So I'm glad you're bringing it up because that is their, their main uh, foundational proof right now that they have for all this stuff is with, on the genetic side with the genome and everything. And so I think allowing our, our listeners to understand a little more, you know, what are the aspects of that that are faulty, that aren't really um, uh, proven per se, that are, I mean, for me, it seems like they're just kind of hacking things together. Yeah. And, you know, so maybe, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts I can, on that. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to go through this a little bit because it is kind of an interesting uh, technology. Um, you know, but uh, suffice it to say that, that if I had a laboratory, you know, with the right equipment and maybe $100,000 of money to do some experiments, I guarantee you that I could, if you gave me a handful of people with an illness that was the same among the people, that I could take samples from them and discover a new virus. Like I guarantee I could do that because I, all I would need to do was go to the database of viral sequences and take snippets of those sequences and make PCR probes. And then, um, if I do enough amplification cycles, I'll find those PCR sequences, and then I could run them in the database and see which virus are they similar to, and it only has to be about 75 to 80% similar, which is a very low bar. And I find that, boom, I say there's a new virus. And whatever it matches, I say it's that type of virus. So if it's a picornavirus or a hantavirus or a herpes virus, whatever it is, I would just give it that label. And then I can do the rest of the experiments really easy um, to show the same thing that they show with, with all these other virus studies. So, um, so you could really do this experiment de novo. And this is why it's so important to overcome the germ theory dogma because over and over again, someone could invent a new threat by doing these experiments and it would look legitimate to people who don't actually read the protocols. And then it would be used to make all kinds of policies probably worse than we're experiencing now um, to, you know, in with under the guise of dealing with the threat, whatever it is. But for the, the genome sequencing and this, you know, a lot of people have made the argument to me that this is the most compelling evidence to say that there is an actual virus. But what they do is they use this technique called next generation sequencing or NGS is how they often write it in the papers. And um, so I did uh, some homework and looked into this technique and you can actually, if you search it on YouTube, you'll find many videos because this is a commercial technique and there are companies making devices that semi automate this and they wanna sell those. So they basically are advertisements that explain the technique uh, geared towards, you know, people that work in laboratories. Um, so it's very useful for this purpose to educate us. And what this technique is, is it's basically a way to very quickly, in a highly efficient manner, sequence the entire genome of an organism. But what it's designed for is to do that with an organism that has a known genome sequence. So let's say, for example, there is like a disease in an animal 
um, like a certain type of cancer, like let's say bladder cancer in monkeys. And you wanna find, is there a genetic mutation that's associated with this bladder cancer? So what you do is you would take that monkey, take a sample from the monkey that only has monkey cells, so it's pure sample, extract the DNA from there, and then run it through this procedure. And what this procedure does, instead of like taking each chromosome and sequencing it end to end, because it may have hundreds of thousands or even millions of base pairs in there, it chops them up into smaller pieces and then puts them on a two-dimensional substrate, like a piece of paper, uh, for example, and attaches one end so that they're all basically, you get this like matrix of these little beads hanging off the paper and they can sequence them all at the same time. So it cuts down the time in a major, major way. Like you could do it in a couple of days instead of weeks. And then what you do after all the sequences of those short strands occur, and those are chopped up in a predictable way with certain restriction enzymes, then you put all those sequences reference genome sequence of the monkey, which is known, and reconstruct it. And then it finds any sequences that indicate a mutation so they don't match the reference genome of monkeys that are healthy. And they would say, okay, this could represent a mutation that causes the cancer. And then they can do further studies to confirm that. Okay, so you see you two critical things to doing using this powerful technique is one that you start with a pure sample that only has the genome of one organism. And on the back end that you have a reference genome of that organism to compare it to. So one, you know that you've got the correct sequence. And then two, so you could find any mutations that you may be looking for. And it uses, like I said, computer software to reconstruct all of the sequences from these fragments into one long sequence. So, that's, so it's a very powerful technique for that type of application, and, and it's a good technique for that. The way it's used in this situation with this unknown virus uh, is very, very problematic because one thing, the sample that they use to do the sequencing is not a pure sample. So in other words, they never did an experiment where they isolated and purified viral particles from a sick person and then have just that genetic material. If they started with that, they would have, they wouldn't even wanna use this technique. They would wanna use the end-to-end -end sequencing in that case because there's nothing to compare it to after the computer reconstructs it. So if you wanna get it accurate, if the genome should be one strand of RNA, you can just sequence that end-to-end. -end. It's a technique called micropore sequencing. And if you had a purified viral particle and you did that, then you could say that that is the genome of that particle. Um, and that would be 100% accurate. But that's not what they do because they've never purified the particles. So what they do is they have a sample of lung fluid. Now that has RNA because they're starting with RNA and they're going to turn it into DNA for this case because they think that the viral particles have RNA as their genetic material. So any cell that's in that lung fluid sample, and it could be lung cells, immune cells, bacteria cells, fungal cells, et cetera, and then all kinds of particles like exosomes and necrotic bodies and things like that. Any of 
genes that are being expressed in any of those cells are going to be present as RNA. And then there's going to be also other types of RNA like transfer RNA and microRNA that have other functions. So in that sample, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of sources of, of RNA. So when you sequence those in fragments, how do you really know what the source of all of those are? Now, some of them you might have specific probes that you pre-identified as being viral, but you can't have that for all of them because we're talking about somewhere around, they say it's 30,000 or 40,000 base pairs is the genome length. So it's a pretty big numbers, not as big as a human, but computationally speaking, it's a lot of number crunching. So then the set, so they put an impure sample, they get sequence of, you know, a thousand fragments or uh, actually in one experiment, there were 20,000 fragments that they sequenced. And then the computer software combines those fragments into one strand. But here there's a lot of error introduced because there are gaps that don't overlap in the sequences. So they just fill those in from a computer library. Like basically they're not part of the real, whatever they're looking at, they're just from a database. So it's like they're imaginary sequences. Um, and then how do they know the order of them um, is correct? because once they assemble this into a one strand, there's no reference genome to compare it to. So how do they know it's correct or what it, what it actually comes from? And this is why you see different labs that do this from different parts of the world. They have different sequences and they're even different lengths. Um, and some, in one paper I saw that they specifically reduced the link to make it match with the results of another paper. But how do you just throw out sequences that you sequenced. Uh, you know, it's like, that's not scientific. Um, that's, you know, just trying to get a result that you want and doing whatever it takes to get that result. So they explain that the sequences are different from place to place because they say it's a viral mutations, but uh, there's no, yes. no evidence <laughs> of that, right? That's just a convenient excuse or, you know, a convenient justification but really it's just because they're not actually making a real genome. They're doing um, a sort of Frankenstein theoretical genome construct based on a theoretical virus that's never been purified. So it's proven to you know, exist as what it is, say, they say it is. So really this whole method is just all subterfuge and, and uh, misinformation. Yeah, just like so, the cases yeah. stuff too. Everything's just all the cases and they're all built off the same thing. It's all built off uh, uh, the fact that they've never purified the virus. Go ahead, Bear. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, you're much better. Okay, uh, sorry, I missed out on a lot of the conversation just came in and tail end here. So Andrew, my question is, um, you know, anybody with any medical training can follow what you're talking about. And I believe even people without medical training would be able to at least follow your logic. You lay it out brilliantly. So the question is, why aren't more doctors or every doctor seeing through speaking out? Of course, we understand that a lot of them don't because there's a heavy price to pay. But there's still a lot of, uh, you know, some of my colleagues that I talk to that just can't connect the dots. So what's the, what's the disconnect there? 
Yeah, well, that's, you know, it's a great question. I think there are a couple of things uh, operating there. You know, one is just kind of the cognitive dissonance that like, you know, if I challenge this, then I can't continue to be a doctor in the same way. And, you know, then what's going to happen to my life? You know, is, is my uh, family going to break up? Am I going to go bankrupt? You know, how will I pay back my student loans? That kind of thing. So you just stay away from it. Um, so that's one part of it. And another part of it is what I said earlier, that's just how many people have actually read one of these articles. Um, you know, I was, there was a doctor, a, a relatively mainstream doctor, but someone who's been somewhat critical of how the pandemic is managed and who wanted to debate me about, you know, whether this virus is, exists and causes the disease. So I started a conversation and and he brought up that the genome has been sequenced and he sent me a link to GeneBank, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the government database of like genomes that have been sequenced and it was published there. But I said, well, do you know how that sequence was determined? And, um, you know, I think that for most doctors, there's just an assumption that if it's on GeneBank, you know, the National Institutes of Health, they wouldn't mislead us. I can trust it why would I look into the methodology? And by the way, I couldn't find where on the GeneBank website that they describe the methodology at all. They do reference some published papers that describe it, but it's unclear which one they actually used to, uh, for the sequence that they um, publish. So, you know, it's like the devil is really in the details. And, you know, it took me a bit of research to figure out how this next generation sequencing worked. It's not like I just looked at the first paper and I was like, oh, aha, you know, because um, they write it in a coded language that you don't know. And even if you're a molecular biologist publishing, you still don't know the virology language. They use their own language like, um, and they change the meaning of words. Like they use the word isolation, even in the title of their papers, but they don't, isolate anything right by the the English language definition, which means to separate from other things. So you have to learn that when virologists use the word isolate, what they mean is actually grow it in a toxic cell culture. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how they use the word isolate to describe that, but that's what it means. So when you read that in a paper, you have to substitute, you know, grow in a toxic cell culture. Um, and then you can understand what they're talking about. So I had to invest significant, you know, time and energy to learn this language so that I could read these papers and actually figure it out. And then once you figure it out, you see, right, like Mike, you mentioned, anyone can understand this, uh, you know, once I break it down. Um, it's just they make it very inaccessible. And really, I think that's all that I've been doing in my time in this world is like taking this coded language of science and just explaining it so that an average person can understand it because science should be accessible to an average person. It's really not above or beyond our intellectual abilities, but we've been sort of um, uh, brainwashed, if you will, to think that we can't you understand science and math, right? And like the yeah. people that go- But we've got MIT. Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> well, he definitely doesn't understand science and math, or at least if he does, he's purposely trying to 
lead people astray. Exactly. <laughs> but but the truth is, it's like I mean, it's not the concept is not that hard. It's just all of the packaging uh, that it's wrapped in makes it seem impenetrable. Yeah, the uh, Stefan Lanka. And it is the packaging, and and. Uh, Go ahead, Bear. Okay. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay, still. Sorry, guys. My interconnection is uh, internet connection is going in and out. So, uh, go ahead, Mike. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that Stefan Lanka uh, recent article. I'm sure you're aware of that, Andrew, where he kind of breaks this all down, which is great because he was a virologist and he explains this beautifully. The whole uh, issues and problems with uh, genetics. Uh, the, this new process you're talking about how they have to take the end caps is essentially uh and use something they already know uh exists so you can't really use this process to come up with a new quote-unquote virus uh, and so uh i highly recommend anybody reading that because he he makes it pretty understandable for the average joe to um to figure out like what exactly all the issues were with that. So, yeah. and Stefan's uh, work in this area has been like so crucial because he does have that insider's, uh, you know, perspective. And, and he's the one that encouraged me to look at some of these uh, issues, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, that led me to spend the time figuring them out. Um, but he, you know, like he, he already figured out what was uh, the most important thing to look at. And that was really useful to talk to him to clarify some things. And, uh, you know, I was inspired there to really uh, dig into some of these areas uh, to help expose them. So, yeah, that, that is a great resource uh, to look at uh, for sure. I wish, uh, you know, uh, I wish you were closer. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, maybe I'll be able to get over to Europe someday and uh, uh, interview him in person. Yeah, you know, I was going to comment before that science, I believe, uh, has been purposely made inaccessible. You know, even in my own training, when I was going through my pre-med and you're in all the mathematics, you're trig and calc and, and all these things that you have to, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, I had this goal. of becoming a doctor but then you know midstream you're doing all these courses and you're going what am i doing you, you forget what your your end game is because you're so mired in these kinds of uh you know studies but the point i want to make with that is that there's two types of uh medicine there's functional medicine which is on the ground what's happening with real bodies in real time when people see a physician what kind of results do they get and then at the same time you have your or, uh, you know, external research where you extrapolate from that into what's going on real time. Did I lose you again, Mike? Are you there? Yeah, unfortunately, you're breaking up. I don't know if it's the smoke with the, um, I mean, we're getting you and you, we kind of lose you and then it speeds up and tries to catch up. Um, so I don't know. It might be the smoke getting in. Okay. Yeah. Away. Of smoke did come through. You stop me. If functional medicine, it's like a tradesman. You're uh, on the ground, and when you're through with your job, things either work or they don't. And what's unfortunate within the medical field, doctors 
you know, do rote procedures. Things not only don't work, but things get worse. And then meanwhile, on functional medicine, you're uh, doing things contrary to, you know, the conventional approach, but then things do work. You more than often, you know, more than not have a problem we have, of course, is that uh, medical doctors in particular are, are prevented from trying anything that might give them a different experience. And then, of course, they have to revert back to, like I did early on, you know, in my career before or I made the jump to alternative medicine, technologies and, and institutions behind us, it has to be true. Um, Bear, it might be just so, worth, um, you know, might, again, just that distinction. Yeah. Man, you're, you're dropping gold nuggets here. And, I, I, and I, I know Andy and I are probably catching most of this, but it is frustrating. And I know I'm sure it's frustrating for our listeners. Um, it might be worth just either trying the other uh, internet you got, the other, the other Wi-Fi you have, or um, maybe restarting the computer and coming back because it's a shame because you're, I know uh, it's some brilliant stuff you're saying and it's just unfortunate right now because it's really coming up broken. So, um, yeah. yeah. No Maybe he could get on the... Uh, uh, I already okay. tried that, but I'll uh, not to interrupt. Okay. <laughs> um, bummer. Well, we'll see if it gets better as this as the show goes. So, uh, But, uh, Andy, you, you kind of got a, a, a sense of what he was saying there, right, in terms of... Yeah. I, I think, Bear, what he was really trying to encapsulate is why we are at why we're at now with MDs and how it's not necessarily these... I, I mean, most MDs really mean well, they got into this job to, I mean, some got in to make a bank load of money, but most, a lot that I know of got in because they have a passion for science, a passion for wellness, want to help, want to um, be a member of their society and, and in a way that is, you know, helping man be healthier. And unfortunately, there's a whole infrastructure of, of really scientism that is the foundation of everything that is really uh, getting in the way of true um, health. Well, you know, the Rockefeller was really uh, smart um, because, and, and we're talking about, uh, um, the, you know, the original Rockefeller uh, back in the early 20th century, um, because the way that he infiltrated the medical system was to go after medical schools. Because if you control the education, then all of the future physicians are going to basically be educated how you want them to be and they're going to practice how you want them to be. So it really comes down to this. They don't teach you any useful ways of helping people heal in medical school. They only teach you basically, you know, the cut, burn, poison model of pharmaceuticals, surgery, and radiation. And it's very, very heavy on pharmaceuticals. So that's really the only approach that you have in your toolkit um, when you get out. And then they basically give you license to use those pharmaceuticals, even in situations where they're not technically supposed to be used for. And that's what the, like your residency is about. In other words, it emboldens, emboldens you. Like for example, with uh, in child psychiatry, which is a, a subspecialty of psychiatry, they are the ones by far prescribing the most drugs to kids in terms of like the number of drugs per kid. Um, now they don't, you know, most kids are prescribed from primary care doctors. So not all of them make it to child psychiatrists, but among psychiatrists, they basically feel 
the most comfortable loading children up on meds because they did that special training and that's what it was really about. But um, what it really should be about is understanding, you know, childhood development and uh, family dynamics. And that, that is really what could probably be helpful to the kids. So the doctors, even if they went to medical school and had the best intentions and were the most altruistic uh, people around, they just don't get any of the knowledge or tools uh, to really help people. So the way that I went about, you know, developing this knowledge and skill set is by doing it uh, on my own, you know, and I kind of put aside what I was taught to do as a psychiatrist and, uh, you know, general physician and just studied as much as I could. And it was really more difficult because there's not, any standardized uh, curriculum that I'm aware of that I would fully trust. I know there are curricula for like naturopathic schools and such, but um, that wasn't something I had easy access to. So I had to stumble around and find basically other practitioners who are successful and consume as much of their material, but it didn't really have a theoretical basis. So I had to figure that out on my own. And that's what led me to uh, bioterrain theory. Um, and then I realized once I learned that, that actually what I had learned was successful in terms of how to support someone's healing was actually based on the terrain theory model. So I already had through my own observation. And I think this is a critical aspect of science that's accessible for everyone is to observe with your own eyes and ears, like, you know, the sort of zetetic uh, approach. Um, and so I saw people use these techniques and get better, um, you know, and get better from things that are supposed to be not curable. And so I knew that it was real because I saw it with my own eyes happen, you know, in real time. And then when I learned about terrain theory, I realized that all of those things that I had recommended or had learned were successful fit quite neatly into the terrain theory model. And so that's when I knew it was really important. So it kind of had this empirical validation for me, even though I can't point to, you know, a hundred randomized controlled trials that validate it. Um, but all of the randomized controlled trials that say antidepressants work, I've never seen one person in my practice, and I've seen way, way more people take antidepressants than I've seen do natural healing. Not one of them recovered or was cured that I could attribute it to that medicine. So there's this big mix match, um, you know, between what is peer reviewed scientific evidence and what's going to be taught to medical students and PAs and nurse practitioners and all the, and dentists and, uh, all of those people, and then what's actually really valid science. Um, and so this is the main problem that you have with most doctors. And of course, they don't realize, um, perhaps because it's too threatening or because they're just too busy to look into it or they're not really paying attention, um, that what they're doing is not helping people. And in fact, all you have to do really is look at a couple of articles um, like you know, uh, that were published by Johns Hopkins and in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And you'll see that at least the third leading cause of death is from prescribed healthcare, 
you know, like from drugs given as prescribed and from what they call medical errors, which is not really even errors if you look at the definition. So just from those two numbers, you have the third leading cause of death is from our healthcare system itself. And yet, if you surveyed, you know, 100,000 doctors, I might be the only one who knows that out of all of them. You know, maybe there's a couple of others. So, and, and even though those articles are published in mainstream media, right, it's like, it's probably, you know, given one story and put on page, uh, you know, 42 in the back, so that only a few people uh, see it who happen to be looking for that or found out about it. And there are other ways to do this analysis, by the way, that show healthcare is the leading cause of death in the country, over a million people a year. Um, and you can do that even just by taking the Medicare annual report, where it does list how many what they call iatrogenic deaths, which is caused by healthcare. And if you extrapolate that number to the general population, it's over a million deaths a year. So now that's not the most accurate way of measuring this. I don't want to give a false impression like these numbers are approximate, but they indicate a serious, serious problem that is completely overlooked. Like there is no initiative from any private or public entity that is trying to reduce the number of deaths caused by healthcare. Not, not one real effort. There may be some watchdogs and you know, uh, regulatory agencies, but they're not really addressing this at all. And they're not acknowledging it at that scale. They would focus on smaller things like you know, hospital acquired infections. That's just one little part of this picture. Yeah. I would go as far as to say this whole Cerveza hoax. I mean, that's- You know, the, Andrew- uh, I was just gonna say that's the driving force is the iotrogenesis, right? It's the, you get the, the faulty uh, testing. So you get all the cases and then you have people that freak out because they're, they're positive and they go into the institutional, these, uh, into the allopathic doctors who get them on the wrong stuff and then they end up, you know, spiraling out of control and some end up perishing. And it's the iatrogenesis that's the main cause of this, not some crazy, scary new virus. Right. You know, we know, I mean, over 80% of uh, people who are treated with ventilators during that critical, uh, you know, period in April and May when there were some excess deaths, th they had that super high mortality. Practically anyone that was put on a ventilator died. And the, the, big thrust of healthcare was to put everyone on ventilators. So essentially they killed everyone. And, uh, you know, this is well characterized even in mainstream medical literature, but no one is talking about the truth of it. But, you know, I think Rancor did an excellent epidemiologic analysis on the excess death uh, that was published on ResearchGate, if anyone wants to look. And he really showed how um, it's not characteristic for any kind of seasonal illness, that it was caused by really a combination of, I would say, three categories. One is the fear from the, all of the announcements in the lockdown that caused some people to maybe even commit suicide or have major uh, decline in their health. And then the two biggest ones were, were number two is not having access to healthcare because the hospitals were essentially shut down to non-COVID related illness. So if you were having a heart attack, you were not going to the hospital and instead you were dying. And then 
And then the third one, which is by far the biggest, because something like 70% of the deaths in the United States occurred in institutional care, which is hospitals and nursing homes. And you had basically, they changed all the policies in those facilities of how they administer care to those people. And it resulted in all the deaths. So the biggest portion of deaths was directly from those policies in nursing homes or care homes, as they call them in Europe, and hospitals. And that's why you only see certain geographic areas where these deaths occurred. Like in California, for example, the case rates and the hospitalization rates were almost the same as New York, but New York had many, many more deaths. In fact, California had no excess deaths, according to the main statistics, whereas New York had a huge amount. And so because it was that emphasis on the, um, the, the revised hospital protocols in New York, I think that was, and the nursing homes, that was where the biggest proportion of nursing home um, you know, mismanagement occurred. And so that's where you had the most deaths. Um, but you, you know, if you break this down, you can see that that's, the, that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't related yeah. to any other mysterious <laughs> And and people aren't falling over in Skid Row in L.A. or, you know, in these massive homeless camps where they're not using masks, not social distancing, have poor health, many are drug addicts and, you know, eating Taco Bell when they can or Snickers bars or whatever. So they have right. terrible terrain and they're still pretty good. Like there's no pandemic raging through the shanty towns of India that I know of or any of these places. And that seems like just an obvious yeah. thing, right? Well, Mike, if you just look at, at uh, a similar illness, right, that um, they also say is uh, um, conveyed through respiratory uh, transmission, tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis, by the way, has a much higher mortality. Uh, you can look at the world statistics on that from in the worldometer, and you'll see there are many more deaths from TB each year. But TB definitely does uh, do what you're saying. So people who are homeless and who are poor and have marginal lifestyles are the ones that have much higher rates of TB, right? But you don't see that at all in this current situation because it's not an, in, you know, whatever an infectious process really is, right? It's really a detox process. That's who you'd expect to see it in. Um, and, and like you said, we don't. And also a virus doesn't affect people differently in New York and California, right? New York and California have roughly the same culture and roughly the same economic um, you know, standard of living. So it's not like comparing, you know, Nicaragua to California, um, New York and California. Why are they so different? Why is there so much geographic variation in the United States where some places, most places, in fact, almost every place has not really been touched at all with mortality and a couple of discrete places like New York, New Jersey and, and Louisiana and a couple of others were hit really bad. And, you know, the reason is because those are the places that they could use to make everyone else think that it's going to be bad everywhere. Like during the presidential debate the other night, it was held at the Cleveland Clinic, right? In an area that they use for students, for medical residents and other healthcare trainees. And they said that they basically set up a part of the Cleveland Clinic with, I think, a thousand beds to handle people from the pandemic. And then they just casually made this announcement during the introductory remarks that, oh, thankfully, it didn't come to Ohio, right? Well, how could it not come to, you know, to Ohio? 
<laughs> it, uh, it just doesn't uh, make sense. And, you know, if you look back at the 1918 pandemic, you, it was everywhere. You know, I mean, it, there were certain areas that were more uh, hit, but they were much more widespread and bigger. And, you know, if you look at the reasons of what caused the illness there, you can understand why that was. Um, but, but with this, you know, it's only discrete places, um, you know, have uh, problems. So it's, it's just so telling if you really look at the data comprehensively um, that, that nothing adds up to an infectious uh, pandemic that spreads from one person to another. Yeah, Bear, how's, how's your internet now? I don't know. You tell me. I keep getting a pop-up that the internet is uh, unstable. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, give it a shot. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it must be tough. I'm a, unfortunately, up. I'm about 20 minutes behind your conversation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, if you can hear me now, you know, again, but if you look at, uh, I hear your process of medical discovery, Andrew, that you went through, and what you're really describing is a classical logic process, and I think that's the thing that's been left out of our education, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and in fact, we're going to do a presentation soon where I've done a whole schematic on what the trivium quadrivium oh. and uh, you know just the whole um you know information gathering good information gathering without making up your mind about anything then you ask uh you know questions and then you develop a rhetoric about that so that you can share your information and pick each other's brains and then, of course, it requires it hold in the, what we call the four pillars of classical logic, the, the so-called, uh, um, you know, classical sciences, your sacred sciences, sometimes they're called. And I think that's what's really lacking uh, with all of us now is we just really don't, you know, you have to have a, a fairly good intellect in order to... you know, absorb all the information you're giving it yourself and make sense out of it and then apply that in a way where it's logical. Bear, this, this is really excellent that you brought that up because, you know, I'm, uh, in addition to all of this, um, uh, you know, healthcare speaking out, I'm also a new homeschooler. Um, because, you know, obviously there's no way I could, even though my kids were in a, a good Montessori private school, there's no way I could send them, uh, you know, wearing masks and uh, sitting in uh, quaternary amine disinfectant uh, soup um, all day. Um, and they wouldn't even, they didn't want to because they wouldn't get to really socialize with their friends, which is the only reason they, they want to go to school. <laughs> so, so um, what I recognize exactly what you're talking about that, you know, the children of our, our nation really are not educated in a way to become lifelong learners or to reason and form their own opinions. They're really indoctrinated by being fed, you know, carefully curated information that is most, you know, a lot of it is not even true. 
so that they will kind of be obedient workers and, and listen to designated experts and follow authority figures, right? And that's real, the real purpose of our compulsory schooling system. And anyone who has not investigated that, please read John Taylor Gatto's work um, to learn more about that. Um, so the trivium and the dialectic um, and classical education are super important because like my, you know, what I want to do to help educate my kids is to uh, basically create autodidacts, right? People who can teach themselves anything and will continue to like and develop a passion and, and a curiosity about learning whatever they're interested in or how things work out in the world or, and then, you know, a person who's prepared in that way, they can do anything and they don't need to go to a training program or a university to learn how to do something, right? Just like I was able to teach myself natural healing, I didn't have to go back and go to another school and get another degree. And um, I was probably able to do this as or more effective um, you know, than going through a curriculum because I was able to use my discernment uh, to know what information is valuable instead of having to spend my time on information that may not be as of, of particular value to me. So the trivium is an excellent way. And essentially that's kind of like developing three basic skills that allow you to be an autodidact, right? That has to do with um, communication uh, and reasoning essentially. Um, you know, so like the basic things. Um, and of course you can go into a lot more uh, detail than that. And I'm, this is something I'm studying right now to help develop ways to uh, bring this to my children. But, you know, this is what we need because if you have curiosity and critical thinking skills, and I, I would add that the classic education, like, you know, mythology and such is also really important because the, uh, the allegory that you'll learn about there and the symbolism gets played out over and over again in how things work in the world. And that'll give you a great way to understand and see patterns that you wouldn't pick out without that classical education. So if we had a future generation of people who are educated in this way, um, all of these problems that we're talking about would, would disappear because people wouldn't be fooled. Uh, with misinformation, or they wouldn't be very easy to be manipulated and pigeonholed and controlled, um, and they wouldn't stand for it. So that, you know, passion and curiosity will bring about like a, an awesome future because, and then people will be able to just collectively solve problems spontaneously so that, you know, our um, society could be improved uh, for all people. So I, you know, I highly support that. And I'll just conclude by saying that I think Right now, homeschooling your own children and not subjecting them to the travesty that's going on in our education system at the moment is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, important acts of resistance and noncompliance that you can do now to deal with this kind of tyranny that is upon us and is, and is looking to get worse in the future. Because that's the way to save the future generation you know that those schools are going to be the main place to take those children and make sure that they are obedient in a future society that I don't think we really want for them. Yeah. And with the method that you 
you're describing, uh, you can have absolutely no training in a particular subject matter and come up with some pretty good conclusions on your own. And at the same time, be able to fact check, the, well, not fact check, but just uh, logic check the experts uh, as far as the veracity of what they're telling us in the first place. And I agree with you some odd years ago with our own kids, which is why we elected uh, to homeschool. And I can't, it's, I would liken it to child abuse, really. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And a lot of people have, uh, you know, made that that statement or that comparison. Um, you know, it's just a, it's such a critical thing to to uh, be able to learn this way, uh, you know, in order to uh, just be able to keep things straight uh, down the road. And, you know, what uh, as terms of like being able to learn things on your own, it's like we've kind of been convinced, right, that in order to be able to do anything for yourself, you need to get a degree, a certificate, a license, all these things, right? But the truth is that we're all capable of doing all these things, you know, without that, uh, th those things are completely unnecessary. Um, if we wanna learn how to do something, we just need to put the effort in and the time to do that. Um, but we don't need someone to tell us exactly what we need to learn to do that because how do we know that they got it right? Um, you know, um, we need to trust ourselves and maybe use those as a guide. Um, you know, and this goes for me too. Like, don't take what I say as, uh, as the whole truth either. Like, you know, take it with a grain of salt, like challenge it yourself, ask your, uh, you know, you'll have questions when you hear me talk. So like, try to find the answer to those questions and figure it out and form your own opinion. And that's, that's how, you know, we end up enriching each other's experience. Like, you know, when you mentioned Stefan before, it's like he had ideas about what was going on and, and I had ideas as an outsider and talking together, you know, helped us both uh, enrich our opinions about things. And then the last thing I'll say about this, it kind of um, follows suit is it's really, really important to look at things outside of your field. So I've gotten a lot of criticism, you know, that I'm not a virologist. Um, I'm a psychiatrist for, you know, uh, can you believe that? You know, I'm not even a, a legitimate doctor, right? But it's only because I'm outside of virology that I'm able to look at it. And I don't, whatever I conclude, it doesn't matter to me. Like it's not going to affect my career because I'm not a virologist. Like I don't have a stake in the game other than as you know, a general person of the gener of the population who's dealing with the policies from this, you know, situation, right? So that's my only interest, the same interest as anybody else in the world. So, but if you're a virologist, you need to preserve your field, right? So we can't rely on virologists to police themselves, just like we can't rely on police to police themselves or any other body. And our society has really established this. So like for physicians, for example, they have a state board that's not made up of physicians that, you know, polices doctors to make sure that they don't, you know, mistreat their patients or uh, perform surgery while they're high and things like that, because doctors would give each other a break, you know, because of the camaraderie and the identity. So the same thing is true for virus scientists. So actually the fact that I'm not a virologist makes it much, in my opinion, more powerful 
if I have a criticism because I'm, I'm not trying to protect virology, right? I'm trying to protect the world's population. That's my goal. And if everyone needs to do that and not, not be intimidated and say, oh, that's not my field. And if you come out of the compulsory schooling system, that's what you're going to tend to say because you're going to say, well, they're the experts in virology, so I should just listen to what they say. But there's a big problem with that, that then they can say anything they want, whether it's true or not, and you'll believe it. So it's really, really critical to always, you know, as an outsider, question a group and, and what their conclusions are and such. And you'll, you'll be really surprised a lot of the time because every group has a tendency to always make self-preservation the highest priority. So if you're a virologist, your number one priority is not exposing the truth about viruses, it's preserving your field of virology. And this is true for every organization and every group. Um, they're always about self-preservation and that's why they need to be challenged from the outside. Yeah, um, and the other thing too is everything that you're talking about in terms of licenses, virologists is all built on fiction. And we understand, we talk about this a lot in terms of the fictional um, public space, right? But <laughs> that is, it's all, the entire system is built on a house of cards of fiction. And so the trivium, as Bear's saying, allows us to step back and, and step out of that fiction and really be empowered to know ourself and know thyself, Aristotle. You know, we all get back to that philosophy and one thing I'll say too is then we bring in the um, the more um, uh, spiritual side. So we we take the spiritual side, which goes to actual true understanding and knowledge, and we merge that with the more um, classical um, learning. And then we have the true Renaissance that I think is coming very soon here, and that's really exciting to me. Um, and we have some people in our uh, community all over the world that it's really hard to homeschool now because their governments are basically making homeschooling illegal or make it very difficult. However, as Masklin uh, was just saying in here, because he's in the Netherlands where they make it seem like you can't homeschool, you can if you know how to say no and if you understand your universal natural rights. So very important because this, this the homeschooling idea opens up all this other stuff, right? So I do agree, uh, Andy, that the homeschooling, and we pulled our kids out of school. Uh, we had a wonderful little small um, a mountain school that our kids were going to, love the teachers, but with all the stuff going on, pulled them out, homeschooling now. And it's just, uh, it's been such a release of stress. And I get to see my kids more. So, yeah. Boy, the morning routine We're, is just so much better, isn't it? Like you're not uh, rushing around to get uh, them someplace on time. Like you can you know, let them wake up spontaneously and have a relaxed uh, morning. It's, it's so much more pleasant, really. Oh, you're telling me, man. Go, yeah, Bear, <laughs> what were you just saying? And it, it, what's, great about, well, what's great about homeschooling, too, is the parents remain uh, the main peer group for your kids. So you don't have that whole family, you know, when the kids, especially start reaching adolescence and, and and, uh, you know, you never spend any time with have the ability to develop that rapport in the first place. You know, and we homeschool 
with our kids, first thing we did every morning, I have to let them expend energy so that they can sit down and focus later on. And the only other thing I would say for people that are thinking about homeschooling, we got this question all the time. They said, well, how do you guys uh, jive with the powers that be that don't want you to do that. And we'd say, well, the first thing is never ask for permission. Just do it and don't tell anybody what you're doing. Because everybody still thinks there's some kind of homeschool curriculum you need to do, or you have to notify some agency that you're doing it. No, it's your business. It's none of their business. Just do what's best for your family and your kids. Yeah, absolutely. But I would also caution you to uh, try to know what the local regulations are because sometimes like in New York, it's very simple to do the paperwork and um, they will, if you do the minimum and there's some people that basically pass these documents around, you can just really copy and paste and put your kid's name in there, right? So it's not that hard. And if you do the minimum, they'll definitely leave you alone. They'll try to harass you and get you to do extra things and tell them more, but you can just say no to all those things really easily. If you don't do any paperwork, there is a chance that they could have Child Protective Services investigate you uh, for educational neglect. So, And now some places are much more strict about that. Like, for example, I was on vacation a couple of years ago with my family, and we met another family from Georgia. And they said that if they take their kids out of school for a vacation, that they'll actually get a visit from Child Protective Services. Wow. Which is totally insane, right? Because the parents, it's their children. They, they make the parenting decisions, but not, not in Georgia, at least at that time. So um, most, uh, most communities, you can find like a consultant that helps you with this so that they just basically give you like, uh, you know, like I said, forms that you can copy and paste for whatever your state requirements are that can just keep them away from you so you can do your own business. And like the one in my area, you know, just gave this information out free to everyone. And then if you want more, you can hire them as a consultant, but it, it's super easy. Um, you know, so um, there's lots of resources out there. Just find people in your area. They know how to help you and then you'll do the bare minimum. So you, they just leave you alone. And even if you put in a certain curriculum or whatever that you copy and paste from someone else's form, don't feel that you have to stick to that. Um, you know, you, you do what you think is appropriate. Um, and, you know, whatever you tell them is, is your own business. Yeah. And there's also um, like charter schools and stuff you can kind of be involved with that take care of your paperwork, but then you're still homeschooling. So, um, and we're actually doing something similar uh, with a school out of Ojai, California, that's doing the, a lot of the virtual classes and helping us out while still here at home. So there, there's different like hybrid ways you can go about it too. It's just, everybody's got a different lifestyle, right? As well. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, spot on. There are so many resources out there. And actually, if anybody's like really into this and, and is a little worried that we, we do have an amazing private telegram group that our friend, Dr. Edith Abunto Chan started. That's the unschooling telegram group. That's a great resource. There's a lot of people in there that have been on AlphaCast that are in it. And um, it's uh, fantastic with the unschooling concept, which is the next step. That's a little more radical, but um, the idea there is that, um, you know, essentially you let the children kind of, um, 
uh, uncover and discover what really is they're passionate about. And then, and this is just how life, this is how I'm always with everything in life. I'm always teaching my kids no matter where we are. And, you know, I have a passion about learning. So no matter where we are, they should be learning. I mean, we're in a, this is this, we, we incarnate here as a school as so our souls can learn. So um, I feel like some parents with the, the way schooling's been for generations is send your kids off to school. Then you're so exhausted from work. When you finally see them, it's go in front of the television, eat dinner, maybe have a little chat around the table. What'd you learn at school today? And then go do your homework and then pass out and start it all over again. When really, uh, what, what a much more enriching life. Let's go on a hike and let's learn about what this mushroom is. And, oh, look at that. That's a pine martin. And, oh, here, here. And then, oh, um, you, then you can move into math on like how that works with why that squirrel is you know hibernating here i mean and then you integrate all of these different with the trivium and the quadrivium everything into your daily life and now you're um you just have a much more enriched uh, relationship with your parents or excuse me with your kids your kids see you as a role model of of uh, as a teacher um and then <laughs> makes your life probably a lot easier when they're teenagers and um, it yep. just seems like that's how it should be, right? And then you have kids come over and you do parties together where, you know, you go out and do stuff and uh, the, the parents all hang out and you, you go on nature walks together. So there's tons of, you know, and, and I know Bear talks about this a lot with the homeschooling. People wonder, well, how you, you know, how your kid's going to, um, you know, work in terms of socialization. And, uh, you know, for us, it's like, it's, I think it's a much better socialization protocol to be one, as Bear was saying, with other adults so that they can get, you know, uh, you more in tune with uh, other interesting people that are more evolved uh, in terms of their thinking process. But also then not in an institutionalized setting where kids are all kind of stuck in a certain routine, but they get to be free to interact with their peers out on a hike or at the beach or in a martial arts class or whatever and swimming or, you know. So um, anyways, this Telegram group, if you are interested in it, uh, DM me on uh, Telegram or on Instagram or whatnot, and I can kind of connect you to that because it is an amazing resource. Yeah, those are some uh, some great points. And, um, you know, um, with the, the sort of let the kids uh, do their own education, like one thing that, that I did with them is uh, right before we started, I said, you know, I want you each to write down three things that you want to learn about. And so my daughter wrote down that she wanted to learn how to build a girl's clubhouse, right? She's eight years old. But what she really means is how do I build a building? So imagine all of the things that she can learn by doing that project. And of course, it's not something that you would typically think of in a classroom, right? I mean, most people think, you know, you sit with a math workbook and, and learn arithmetic, right? But in doing that, so first of all, she's gonna actually learn some hands-on skills, mm -hmm. right? And develop her motor coordination and be able to use a hammer and a screwdriver and a saw and things like that. She's going to also learn a lot about measurement, right? Because, you know, measure twice, cut once when it comes to wood. So, and in that, it's not just going to be measurement, but it's also going to be geometry, like measuring angles and maybe even doing some trigonometry to calculate, uh, you know, how to build a thing, right? And then there's going to be an understanding of building structures, 
right? What's a frame? What's siding, right? How do you weather seal? Uh, what fasteners are stronger than others? What materials work better for which applications? So you see that like when you have something like that and it's something she's passionate about because she wants a place where she and her girlfriends can be private and do girly mm -hmm. things, right? Yep. So it's a big benefit and she's got that motivation, not like telling her to sit down and do a measurement chapter in the workbook, right? And she's also learning practical skills that could come into massive play throughout her life, right. uh, you know, so it's not just book learning, right? So it's practical and, uh, as you were saying, factors of trigonometry, physics, et cetera. So it's the best of both worlds. Absolutely. And, you know, then even if like she may not have to become, a, you know, a construction worker herself, but when she hires contractors in the future, she'll be able to look at their work and say, <laughs> yes. corners, right? Are they ripping me off? Right. So it, even no matter how you approach it, it's still a practical skill, um, you know, not like learning, you know, memorizing an equation that you'll never apply, but it's a real world practical thing. And then the other thing I wanted to say to back up uh, your comments was in relation to the influence that you would have as parents, because, you know, one thing is if you send the kids to school and most people just send them to public school, you're basically letting strangers raise them because they're spending a lot of hours with those strangers and you don't have any say who those people are and you don't even really know them, right? So you're letting complete strangers do this. Um, and then you, because of the, the classroom sizes in school, right? You have like maybe 40 peers and one teacher in a classroom. So they're gonna have undue influence by their peers. And it is not natural to socialize with a peer group that are all the exact same age. Mm -hmm. Like that just doesn't occur in nature, right? We, we uh, have lived in communities traditionally that would have people of all generations and all ages mixed together. And even the first schoolhouses mixed different age groups. So normal socialization is to socialize with people of different age groups. And why that's really important is because the more mature people in the group, the older kids with more wisdom will put some checks and balances on the younger kids and be able to mentor them so that they are less likely to do stupid things. But when you have a peer group, you know, especially when they get around that puberty age, when it's natural to rebel against the parents, their only influence is other peer groups. And that can get into a lot of trouble. Uh, because they just don't have the wisdom and the self-control to make good decisions. They need to be guided by, you know, older, more wise, uh, either peers or, or adults. And when you do the education in a home setting, you eliminate that problem. And much of the, the teenage um, problems that parents have with their teenagers, as you pointed out, is really due to this undue peer influence that you know, causes them to re rebel more against the authority figures at the school and at the home. And this can really ruin things in your, in your house. I mean, I, so many people talk to me when their kids are teenagers that it's like just a nightmare for them. And uh, so I would encourage people, if you want to explore this issue further, uh, Gabor Matei wrote an excellent uh, book about this. Uh, it looks like you might have seen it there, Mike. Very uh, familiar. This is a, this is a really uh, key aspect and you definitely, this is not really an issue if you do homeschooling, um, you know, unless you just, if your idea of homeschooling is put your kids at the kitchen table with some standardized curriculum all day and don't talk to them, that's not <laughs> going to work out well either. But if you, and you don't have to be with them all day and you don't need to, 
actually teach them all day. You just need to interact with them enough that you're involved and you know what's going on with them and you give them guidance where they need it. And in my, you know, with my, some of my kids that like push them a little bit if they get lazy. Um, but usually that happens much less when they actually want to learn about what they're doing. Um, so if you just have that basic level of interaction, you're going to have that close relationship. And when the kids do reach puberty, you're going to have a much more productive relationship with them and they're still going to trust you. They're not going to rebel against you in that way that you're afraid of that will happen. Yeah. And I know one thing people say is, well, how can I homeschool when I've got a nine to five job? Well, a lot of people don't have that nine to five job right now. So look at this <laughs> as an up because they're at home or if they're doing it from zoom or whatnot. So look at this whole thing. We talked about this with Kelly Brogan uh, earlier in the week. This is a massive, wonderful opportunity right now we have to really, they talk about like, you know, the reset, the world of um, economic forum, the, the reset. Well, we have the opportunity to have the reset here, yes. which is, you know, finding your entrepreneurial spirit. I think the homeschooling thing is cool because it actually could help the parents almost as much as the kids re refine their passion for education and life and, and finding out what interests them. And, you know, taking that, taking that step away from what society has kind of lead, led us down with these peer groups. Cause we see from what's happened as you're so rightly said, Andrew, in terms of growing up in your own peer group through, um, you know, uh, grammar school into middle school, high school, university, and then even in your traditional job place, you are pretty much in your peer group. And we've seen, we have a mass majority of grown up children that are, really lost so and i think this fracturing in society we're seeing right now with the political spectrum with um everything to do with like the racism stuff right now with um the the health you know questions with the masks and everything that is a extrapolation that is a um actual visual visualization of this entire system fracturing with because of the educational problems we've had because of the system yeah. we have so it's great to see the, the half glass full mentality that this is an opportunity for everyone listening here to really think outside the box and take, if you have kids, take them us on, take them on this journey with you. Use these platforms like the internet, um, these digital platforms to connect with other people that are thinking in these ways and start just, um, you know, broach, you know, kind of going out on your own here a little bit and figuring it out because, what else is the alternative? The alternative is that debate that we saw, which that presidential debate, which is not, which was, I think, really beneficial for this country because for the first time, I'm seeing my friends that are like, that are really following politics, which Bear and I really don't do. We're pretty apolitical because we, we know it's all in the fictional space. But they're coming together like, well, that's really bad, guys. I think we got to fix this ourselves. So, how that happens. Well, that's the conversation that needs to really take off in the U.S. especially. But um, it's exciting times for that, right? You know, just like nobody can fix our bodies for us, um, no central authority figure can fix our problems for us. You know, we, we really do have to step up and figure out solutions for ourselves and how to uh, live the way we want to do. And uh, all this reliance on these authority figures and even, you know, many people in our community, right? And, and, and I understand this because there's a desperation about what to do 
right? They, they want to go and like protest the government and ask the government to change things or go to the court system and ask the court system to change things rather than taking it upon themselves. And, you know, I'll tell you how that works out because I had the experience this week of participating in a court case. Um, and, you know, there's, there's press about this. So if people want to read it, it's the Connecticut Freedom Alliance. They sued the Department of Education trying to get an injunction to uh, remove the mask requirement for the students. And so I was um, retained as an expert witness in this case, as well as another excellent expert witness out of Texas. And we had a mountain of science on our side showing the harm and the lack of effectiveness of masks. I was talking about the psychological harm because I'm a, I'm a board certified psychiatrist and the other doctor was talking about the general medical issues. And this is, I've, you know, I've been um, an expert witness many times in my career because I focused on forensic psychiatry and every single time I've always been qualified as an expert witness because I have excellent credentials and I have a very clean, track record of giving good testimony on both sides. In this case, they, based on, you know, something totally out of, out of left field, they did not qualify either of us as expert witness, even though, you know, in, in my case, especially, right, I have all of the qualifications because it's right in my field. And what the judge wrote is basically that my fringe beliefs about viruses are so outside the accepted um, scientific you know, consensus, which is a contradiction in terms, that my testimony on other subjects can't be reliable. So I was not qualified as an expert witness. And it had nothing to do <laughs> with the evidence that I was presenting, which was all outlined in a brief that the judge had, could see that there was a mountain of evidence. He didn't want to get that into court because if, if he did, he would have to then overturn the governor's order and uh, go against the state who was his employer. And you could see that he was very, very nervous about doing that. And basically, this was a shortcut, a way out for him, an exit strategy. Say, oh, these experts, they're too wacky, even though everything they said is like totally scientific. Like he didn't ask me what's the scientific basis of my belief about viruses because, well, one is that would have taken a lot of the court's time. But well, he, he did make a claim, right? He, and he made a claim. So he has to back up that claim. So if you really wanted to go down that, that yes, uh, rabbit the hole. Lawyer, the lawyer could have challenged this, but the thing is, it's like, you know, even if they were successful, you know, it, the, so much time would transpire that <laughs> may not be a timely issue anymore, or it would exhaust the uh, funds of the plaintiffs because, you know, it's very expensive to do these things. Um, so it, it's just not practical. But my, my real point is that if you go to the court, an authority figure, who doesn't understand the issues, right? The court is completely ignorant to science and say, please rescue me. It's not going to be successful, right? Because the only way that you can be successful is through your own effort, right? So you say, I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to either, I'm going to send my kids without a mask and they're going to, you know, demand to be educated or you say, 
thank you. I'm not going to let my kids go to the school. I'm going to homeschool them instead. And that's really, I think, the only solution. And, you know, also I would say that if you're not able to receive the school services, you should very strongly consider whether you're going to pay those taxes uh, to support that as well. And, you know, I'm not saying don't pay your taxes and get in trouble, but I'm saying it's something that you should consider and you should learn about because by financing this system, you're also uh, supporting it, um, even if it's unwitting. And um, if you, you know, the more you learn and bear, I know that you have studied this extensively, but you're actually not really responsible for paying those taxes. Um, you've agreed to do it and you can, you can unagree uh, <laughs> to do that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, a lot to consider, but, you know, sending your kids to school under these circumstances is certainly not going to be in their benefit. Yeah, the uh, Buckminster Fuller quote, once again, it seems to come up every time on this show, <laughs> um, but it is so apropos. It's, you know, don't play in their games. Let's just start our own thing. And that's what Alpha Vedic's all about. And, you know, the status correction stuff's really important, understanding that and how everything's an offer uh, in commerce. And we do have, um, we have uh, Tom Barnett coming back on with Mark uh, from Solutions Empowerment from Australia, I think next Tuesday. And we're going to go over all of this stuff. It's funny how like the two big things that Bear woke me up to 10 years ago was germs don't make you sick and your name on your, on your birth certificate is fiction. And I was like, boom, what? <laughs> what bear and we had probably 40 hours of conversations on the phone about this and it's all come to a head right now so bear lando you, and i had uh, a third one there mike if you can hear me <laughs> yeah we hear you uh-oh what did he say what's the third okay. one okay um in the tax in the tax code there is in their own code the revocation of election to pay which not only proves that it's voluntary, but you can also take advantage of their own code if you know how. Yeah, we caught some of that, uh, the revocation to pay. Um, Bear, we're gonna, this is gonna be a good excuse to get Andy back on because, well, you guys are gonna be on with Matt Belair and so we'll make sure that smoke's gone. We'll do some mass meditation, push that smoke out and um, make sure that your satellite feed is good because uh, you know not getting these nuggets of wisdom from you really uh, detracts from the value of the show because I'm just the sidekick. So I'm the Robin, you're the Batman. I can't hold this down together by myself. <laughs> I, I think you do a pretty good job, Mike, actually. Oh. But, uh, of course, you know, we miss having Bear. Yeah, well, real quick, Andy, I, I, did wanna, I did wanna cover this real quick because you brought it up before we were jumping on and we're probably not gonna have time to go into the full presentation and maybe uh, have you back to do that or I assume you're gonna probably do this in length on your own. Uh, oh, and by the way, Bear, you're going on Andrew Kaufman's podcast October 20th or something. So yeah, you're gonna be on with him. So you guys get to have a meeting of the minds and I'd love to hear you guys talk about more about spagyrics and stuff too. Um, and homeopathy and all that. Cause I know that's one of my favorite topics and you guys are both super into that, but you know, this might be something good to end on this operation moonshot, this whole uh, deal in the UK where they, they're, they're planning to test everybody. And, um, you recently were on with David Icke, you were saying 
discussing this. Do you want to give us the quick cliff notes on what you found with that? Because I think it's something really important to know. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, let me say that, like, I kind of started off with this just um, reading this, um, I think it's uh, Dr. Yeadon, uh, a um, former um, uh, director of research for Pfizer, a big drug company who wrote a great article. And uh, there was another article from another scientist as well about the false positive issue. And when I read that, I really realized that um, people don't understand what that is. So we're talking about the, the PCR test, and we don't know what the false positive rate is because there's never been a validation study of this diagnostic test where it compares it to direct detection of a virus. That's the only way you'd, you'd be able to calculate what, what's the error rate of the test because every test has an, an error rate. Like, for example, if you wanted to develop a pregnancy test, the gold standard you compare it to is you wait nine months and if a baby comes out, <laughs> then, right, that's a gold standard of pregnancy. And you if it's so. positive, it matches, right? Um, real so real quick have, question, Andy. Yeah. I, I was just curious. The, the thing up the nose, now is that the antibody or is that the PCR test, the, the terrible stick up the nose? I believe that's the PCR test. That's what and I that's thought. That's the predominant okay. test, yeah. And, okay. and, you know, I don't know what the real reason is to stick it so far, to be uh, honest with you. But there's... So it's, it's called torture. Simple. Yeah, it could be that, <laughs> could be that simple. Um, but... So there's no, you know, known error rate. And so you don't know what the false positive rate is. Now, there was a paper that was withdrawn that estimated it. They have to estimate it. They have to guess at 80%. Now, that paper was pulled. But if it was 80%, that would be, you know, obviously devastating. But a lot of people think that what the false positive rate is, if you have like, let's say, 100 people test positive and the false positive rate is 1%, that means one out of those hundred people is not really positive, but that's not what it means. What it means is how many people that don't actually have the disease, the real disease, how many of them would give a positive test? So if you have a relatively rare disease, like one that is affects 1% of the population or less, for example, That means that 99% of the people don't have the disease and it's the percentage of those people that you're going to, are going to have a positive test depending on the false positive. So if I could pull up uh, my slides, uh, if you could uh, let me have that because math is just too hard to talk about without seeing it. So I'll just pull up a couple of, um, of slides here. Oops. Where did that go? And when you say this type of disease, they're talking about a specific type of uh, pneumonia, pneumonia, correct? Well, we're, um, so, sorry, it, uh, it, you know, we're talking about here the, uh, you know, the the pandemic uh, illness. I understand that, but they're saying that that evolves into, in terms of what the actual, end diseases. I'm, I'm trying to think of again what that Stefan Lanka article discusses <clears throat> in terms of um, the type of uh, pneumonia that develops. And that was like the main symptomology that they right. can tell well, com- comes from COVID. Yeah. Um, so what you, it's probably interstitial pneumonia mm-hmm. um, or uh, on the, the autopsy studies from Italy and Germany report diffuse alveolar damage. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, there are only so few of them we don't really know. And that, that's part of the problem that normally you would be doing thousands and thousands of autopsies. So you'd have a specific pathologic finding under the microscope that you could say, okay, this occurs in every case. And when we see this, we know it's a case. And then you could calculate the, the, the incidence. In other words, how many cases per the population. But we have no gold standard like that. Um, they've done hardly any autopsies, and there's no test that directly detects a virus. So we have to estimate all the numbers to do this calculation. So what I did was, since Operation Moonshot is from the UK government, I just used the UK's numbers. And they have, um, from the, office, the government office for science, they basically put out this paper referenced on the bottom of this slide, which estimates the false positive rate at 2.3%. Now they got this number from other PCR tests for other viruses that also probably weren't validated. So we have to take these numbers with a grain of salt that really this test, we don't know what it measures. It doesn't measure a virus. It just detects some DNA or RNA that we don't know what the significance is. And all these numbers are made up. But these numbers come directly from the UK government. So it's about as accurate as we could use to do these calculations. And this will just give you an idea because the real numbers are much worse than this. So this is like <laughs> kind of the best case scenario of how to do this analysis, right? So we're gonna stick with that 2.3% false positive rate. And so that means that out of all the people who don't have COVID, 2.3% of those people are gonna give a positive test. Mm -hmm. So, the, the other agency in the UK government, the Office for National Statistics, puts out weekly estimates based on uh, their protocol, um, and these are generally accepted by the scientific community, of the prevalence or the incidence, for example, for that week of the disease. I think that these are prevalence numbers, actually. So this is how many people have the disease in a given week, not how many get the, acquire the disease, so the prevalence rate. And you can see that the most recent week they reported is one in 500. So I'm going to use that number in the analysis primarily. Um, and that's pretty rare disease. So if we, let's say we took those recent numbers and just took a, an imaginary group of 10,000 volunteers and let's say, how is that group going to be affected by false positives? So we would see that based on the, the estimates of of prevalence that about 20 people or 0.2% out of those 10,000 will actually be sick. Now, then we take the remainder who are not sick, 9,980, and take the false positive rate of that 2.3%, and we end up with 230 people. So you could see that's way more people than are actually have the disease. So now if you combine the 20 people who are actually sick with the 230 false positives, you can then see a newspaper headline that would say there are 250 new cases, but only 20 of those, 20 of those are real and the rest are false positives. And, so and keep in mind, Terry Mullis, the inventor of the PCR test says sh shouldn't even be used for this to begin with for infectious absolutely, disease. Because he said, basically, if you look for a virus and you do PCR, right, you can find a virus in anyone, any virus in anyone. Yep. Um, so if we then just ask a different question, because this is usually how people might ask the doctor, if I have a positive test, what's the chance that I actually have the disease? And that would only be 
So less than a one in 10 chance that you actually have it if you have a positive test. So this means that 92% of people who test positive are perfectly healthy. Wow. Okay, so this is affecting a lot of people. That's 12 and a half uh, fold exaggeration. So 12 and a half times the number of people are mislabeled um, by this test as are correctly labeled as a positive test. Wow. So if we look at the Operation Moonshot plan, okay, and this was reported in the British Medical Journal, so very mainstream. This was published by the, U the UK government. This is their actual plan to ramp up testing. And interestingly, look at the date of this publication. It was on September 11th. <laughs> There's no coincidences here. Um, so what they plan to do, as stated, is ramp up testing to, for 2021 to have 10 million tests a week. Okay, they call this full rollout. So this would in fact test the entire population of the United Kingdom every single week, all 68 million people. So if we apply the same mathematical analysis, we see that that would mean that 20,000, oops, 20,000 people a week are actually infected out of the 10 million but there would be about um, 230,000 false positives. Okay? Wow. And you see the same numbers just multiplied with a few extra zeros. So the headline could be basically each week, a quarter of a million new cases. Sorry, That's, each day, each, each day, day, a quarter of a million new cases, only 20% are real. So if we apply this to the entire population each week, we would see that each week there's going to be 1.56 million false positives. And that amounts to one in 43 people in the United Kingdom. And they further say in this government plan that there's going to, you're going to have to have a digital passport of some kind that's going to keep track of your testing status. And if you test positive, you will not have access for medical appointments, going to work, accessing a venue, like, like a sporting event or a concert, but many other things as well, or to travel. And they specifically mentioned flying, which is international travel uh, principally. So basically one in 43 people are gonna be banned from these activities when they are 100% healthy and just have a false positive test. And that is many, many more times the people who actually are sick uh, with this illness, if, if you believe that this test really measures it and that those numbers that I said are really accurate numbers. So this is really a major, major travesty for the United Kingdom and any place else that is going to adopt this strategy. Well, also I say a travesty for the Western world or the whole world because we know media is international. It'll pump through the entire, you know, there's only like eight companies that run all the media pretty much in the West and then another like four, China and Asia. So they're all going to just pump out the same narrative and it's going to be a mass freak out across the world that millions of cases are in the UK. What about all the rest of the countries? They'll extrapolate this yeah. across and then they'll say there's hundreds of millions that have this terrible disease and then that will lead to unknown catastrophic effects. Um, so thank God that you, uh, you, you got with David Icke on this because he'll be able to get this information out 
And that's why they're censoring information because they know information is everything. Reality is not based anymore for most folks in terms of understanding what's going on in the world in their day-to-day lives. It's based on what they read on Twitter in the morning or on Google and Apple News, right? So they know if they can pump this out and get this out through the matrix, then that will become the reality of many people. And then that'll usher in Agenda 21. So this is, uh, this is it, man. This is what we're coming down to right now. So and it's funny, it's called Moonshot too. I mean, there's so much to extrapolate out of that. But um, So yeah, we'll keep getting this info out and uh, we will too. And um, I'm glad you did that um, breakdown because uh, I could see that them trying to push that here to the States as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that uh, that's something they want to roll out, and uh, they're in while doing it, they're going to make a, a killing uh, financially from it as well. So once again, everybody, remember these are just offers. It's an offer to get a test. Um, you know, the other thing I was thinking about too is that um, we're so fortunate to, in a way, it's the duality of this reality that we have this commerce law because it does gives us the freedom to work within the realms of commerce to to counter offer and um, you know still have the freedom with uh, universal law and natural law. But maybe this the whole rollout here is they're trying to finally squash even that and just create this really tyrannical system that's pretty much already there where you won't be able to work within the confines of natural law. They're trying to destroy natural law in the end. Yeah, well, Mike, um, I think actually the, the strongest strategy that they have to prevent us from um, you know, removing consent and getting out of the system through status correction is by putting patented uh, materials in our body. Because if they can make an argument that we have, uh, they have ownership of our body through this patent rights, then I think we would now no longer have the ability to remove consent. Um, so that's a very, very dangerous proposition, um, you know, I propose. And, you know, I haven't really considered this very carefully, but that is uh, definitely comes to mind as a main barrier. Uh, you know, <laughs> that to, is crazy. You're blowing my mind right now with the whole transhumanism thing that we aren't a living man or woman anymore. No, you're not a living man. You are a living machine. Right. <laughs> it's like, wow, 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 wow. Um, I, I know Bear is kind of ho- holding back right now because his internet's so bad, but I'm sure he has a gajillion things to say about this. Um, well, hey, man. You know, we- I think when I, when I interview Bear, we should uh, definitely spend some time talking about this uh, law issue because it's becoming more and more important and I'm getting more and more involved in it. Um, and, you know, I think it's time to, to start people, uh, you know, discussing these issues because it's going to be really critical, I think, in the future to have a way to protect yourself from, you know, because right now, we have executive orders and under the guise of a, you know, an emergency situation, right? Yeah. But we all know that eventually these things are going to be legislated by actual legislative bodies voted into law. There are already laws on the books in, in every state in the country. So we need to be prepared, um, you know, because right now it is 100% voluntary, but once it's a law, then, you know, the, the police will be, have the license to enforce it. And if you're still in that system, you'll be subjected to that. Um, so like now is really the time to start investigating this and, you know, um, seeing if you think that there are strategies out there that can protect you like I believe there are. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Go ahead, Bear. 
If you can hear me, I just add one more thing. Practicing medicine without a license in actuality is treating copyrighted disease terminologies, actual uh, practicing medicine. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really looking forward to uh, you got uh, Bear going on with Andy and um, definitely going down those rabbit holes because it that just hit me over the head right now uh, with the whole transhumanism movement and everything. And it, this article on uh, Political Magazine, we're saying, you know, we'll finally get back to normal uh, in about two years. And really, it, that makes sense. It's like they need, they're really trying to extract to take this time out right now so they can build their systems in and get everything tested so that essentially we are born into the matrix moving forward a next generations you know with the genetic stuff they're doing with the crispr technologies with um everything they're doing with ai the whole transhumanism movement scares that is the most scary thing to me uh it's literally the eight sphere aramon coming out that steiner warned about so um, fascinating stuff. I want to, I want to end this on an up note though, <laughs> if possible, which is just, you know, right now everything is an offer. So the more that we understand that and the more we understand this is all just commerce, it's all fiction and that we have the ability right now as there's like, I was telling Troy Casey yesterday, the, a living man has more power on this plane than all the corporations put together. So as long as we understand that and we understand our divine providence and our, and our abilities as co-creators here, all of this is nonsense in the end. It is all fiction. So important to keep that in mind. And um, I hope that those who, um, you know, listen to this and really uh, resonated with this. And if you are able to come to Joshua Tree next weekend, please do uh, DM us on, uh, you can DM me on Instagram at DJ Mike winner, or you can uh, go on our telegram t.me forward slash telegram and get more information there. Please uh, follow us at alphavedic.com. And Andy, go ahead and please uh, give some information on your website. I won't try to say it right now. <laughs> and uh, also uh, give us a little input on what you're doing next weekend. Cause you're involved with a pretty cool uh, conference event. Yes, yes. I've got a, a lot of things going on. So I'll be at the Red Pill Expo next weekend in Jekyll Island, Georgia, the place where the secret meeting uh, took place that planned the Federal Reserve. And G. Edward Griffin is uh, the um, organizer for this conference. And I've been, uh, you know, read his material and seen his lectures for years. So it's really a pleasure to be invited. And there's going to be an excellent panel. And just among health related uh, people, um, Carrie Rivera is going to be there. So I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Um, you know, she's done great work uh, treating vaccine injured children. Um, Del Bigtree is going to be there. Um, David Martin from the Plandemic um, uh, documentary. Uh, David Icke is going to speak uh, remotely from uh, the UK, as well as John Rappaport. So it's a really... Wow. Uh, and, you know, I, I know huge, I'm huge. Well, Chris, awesome Christian, uh, Christian from Ice Age Farmer, is he going to yes, be there? Yes, yeah. the Ice Age Farmer will be there. Uh, Marjorie Wildcraft, uh, Mickey Willis. So wow, Mickey Willis, really a, the director of Plandemic. Yes, a great, great uh, lineup. I'm super excited. And it's in person, you know, just like your conference. So these are like, if you're in the western half of the country, you need to go to Joshua Tree. And in the eastern half, you need to go to Jekyll Island next weekend. Um, you know, I can't wait to like actually be there with a big group of people in person and making contacts and, you know, hugging and shaking hands. 
and all that stuff. And I'm even bringing my, my family, my children and uh, my girlfriend. So it's going to be a great time. Um, so, you know, please consider that. And then actually, you know, I'm not inviting people to this, but after that, I'm going down to Miami to um, uh, shoot the first uh, interviews for uh, my documentary on germ theory and terrain theory that I'm, I'm embarking upon. Um, so that'll be awesome. And there's going to be that weekend, uh, two weeks from now, there is this, um, you know, thank your body uh, rally event that's taking place in cities all over the world. And I'm going to participate in Miami. So, you know, I think that's really important because it's an alternative way of sort of protesting without asking, you know, the big brother government for help, but to saying that we're going to take our health into our own hands and we don't want to be told what to do about that. And we appreciate our body's ability to heal itself, just like we opened this show with. So I'm really excited about being a participant in that you know, great event. So please, you know, uh, please put the link to that website uh, up in the show notes so people can check that out as well. Um, if you'd like to, you know, do any individual consultation with me or just ask me a question or anything else, please do go to my website. It's andrewkaufmanmd.com with one F and one N. And um, I am now also uh, starting to sell uh, my own um, uh, nutritional supplement. I just have one product now, which is uh, Shilajit Mumio, which is a, a trace mineral supplement I think you guys are very familiar with. And uh, except that I'm sold out at the moment. So if <laughs> anyone wants to check it out, you can definitely put in pre-orders and I will have a guaranteed ongoing supply in the near future. But um, you know, I'm really excited to sort of get into that realm because it's really hard to find good quality Shilaji that's reliable. And, um, you know, it's just a, a pleasure to be able to put something out there of high quality that I know is useful uh, for people's health and something I, you know, I would recommend all the time uh, if I were working with people. So, and you guys do the same thing. So it's, uh, you know, it's great that we can do this and bypass the pharmaceutical industry and bypass the, you know, corrupt online retailers like Amazon and, you know, go to the old fashioned way where we find something of value and bring it to people and, um, uh, you know, just directly without uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, parasitic uh, business people ruining it along the way. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of exciting and hopefully people, uh, you know, people responding really well so far. That's fantastic. That's so great to hear. And we'll put all those, uh, all those links in the show notes. So uh, yeah, we've, we've never middlemaned our products. We're direct uh, to consumer. So alphavedic.com, we're not in any other stores or anywhere. So um, please visit our website if uh, you're interested in looking at our products. And please support Andrew and purchase from him too, because uh, uh, that is the future here is uh, decentralized commerce. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Andrew, you are a rock star. We are so thankful that you are here on this planet. And um, we're just uh, just been enjoying this friendship we've been growing over the last year. And uh, can't wait to have you out here. And maybe you could uh, interview Dr. Bear Lando for that. Uh, terrain germ theory documentary. So, well, I was uh, I was planning to ask, and actually, <laughs> I, I would really like to um, uh, have you talk a little bit about about your um, food production um, operation and in the context of uh, of how to support terrain theory, because I know you've got an incredible 
operation there and I can't wait to see it myself um, to be honest with you. So, um, you know, I'd be excited to, uh, for that option. So hopefully you'll be in agreement to, to be part of that project. I'm going to be honored. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, well, Bear, you have enough bandwidth to answer that. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we got to do this like right on the air. It's a it's a, a nice way to do it. But I, I was going to have a conversation right after the show with you about it. But now we got it out in the open. So um, that's awesome that you accepted. Um, very good. Well, hey, guys, everybody, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll let you We'll let you go and uh, please get outside, get your uh, feet grounded and, uh, you know, grow something, go on a hike, go on a walk. I, I end every podcast with that because I just always remind you guys, it's like the most important thing to do. Okay, everybody, have a beautiful day. We love you all. And uh, we hope to see you in Joshua Tree or on Jekyll Island next weekend. Later. <laughs>